Each holiday is special. The holiday of Sukkot, to me, is really, really special. Um, it has special meaning because I had a very good, close, not everyone does, but I had a very good, close relationship with my dad. And uh, so I was very blessed and fortunate. And the reason I mention that is because this holiday speaks about a father's love and care for his children. Now, during this Jewish holiday, you're here, Messianic believers, Jews and Gentiles, you come out here, you don't know much about the holiday. Well, let me assure you, our Jewish people don't know much about it either. Really, they don't. They don't know where it's found in the Bible because they don't read the Bible. It's found in the book of Leviticus, the last of all the Jewish holidays. And so our people don't know. When I was growing up, the age of eight, I had to go to synagogue. My parents signed me up at school, and then you had to go to synagogue three times a week. You had to go for a few hours to learn your Hebrew and the Jewish holidays and get ready for your bar mitzvah. But I always remember, and I didn't know because, you know, kids, we have difficulty with sense of time when it came in. We don't know. It's always the same time. When I grew up, I remember walking through my neighborhood on my way to synagogue or on the way to my elementary school and every so often I would see these little houses these little booths, tents outside of people's houses and I remember growing up saying there they are again what is that all about? now I'm sure my teacher told me in Hebrew school but I, I don't remember, I wasn't paying attention so, and I, but I, I said there they are how, you know, why, Where, you know, who's building houses little, little tents and booths then the synagogue built one. And I really didn't know or understand the significance. And I truly believe to this day, our Jewish people really don't know. Really, because they don't know about their holidays of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Uh, but just, this is the time and happy holidays. That's what they say. So they built it and they didn't know about it. But it is a wonderful, beautiful picture. It's supposed to remind us of a father's love and a relationship. Father's caring. It's supposed to remind you that to 3,500 years ago when the Jewish people came out of Egypt and they just began their history and uh, they, you know, Moses died, they came into the land and, uh, and they were in the wilderness actually before Moses died, in the wilderness with Moses and God provi- provided for them that's what we keep hearing God provided that. I'm not a singer so, too. All right. so he provided and when you think of the holiday that's what I want you to think of provision and dwelling God lives with his people he has intimate relationship with his people as I had a very very close relationship with my dad he always he always watched over me my dad anything my dad told me to do I did really if my dad told me to do something impossible I would do it I would do it because he I usually saw him in the corner of my eye I knew he was there and I said if he's there I can do it I just had that assurance with my dad it was nice I remember uh, we'd go to our swim club in the summer and there was a high diving board. Well, high. it was 12 feet. It was, you know, normal high dive. And I was a kid, three, four, five years old. And people, some people would dare to walk up the steps and go there. My dad said, go on up, go, dive off. Every, people were scared to walk up. People looked, they went back, they chickened out, and they went back. My dad said, you, go on, you can do it. I'd go on up, off I went. Whatever he told me to do. Then my dad said, yeah, you can do that. Good, why don't you do a few flips while you're doing it? You tell me that, sure. So, off I did. Whatever he told me to do. Because I had the assurance and the comfort that he was with me. Not that he was going to do it, but I felt comfortable doing it. I played baseball, Little League Baseball. And, I, and sometimes we'd play another team, and these kids were pitchers, and they could throw a ball fast, and people sometimes were afraid of the good ones. 
My dad said, ah, not you. I said, no? Okay. Right. Everyone's scared to death. He said, no, no, no. I said, what should I do? He said, go up and hit him. Not hit him. When the ball comes in, hit the ball. <laughs> it's going pretty fast. Oh, no problem. Go up there. I go up. I'd hit it. He said, how do you do it? Said, My dad told me to. If he told me to, I could do it. And so that's, I, I related well to, to the, this holiday. I mean, I was so confident in my dad. You know, the worst thing for a little kid, I'll tell you the worst thing, in baseball. When you swing and miss three times and you strike out, you really feel like a loser. It's the worst thing in the world to, to strike out. On occasion, I missed the ball three times and struck out. So I'd go back. And, you know, everyone's usually, you know, you know I stink, I'm no good. My dad says, oh, not you. I said, why? Because you look good. I said, why? He says, yeah, even when you miss it, you look good. I'm pretty good, thank you. So I, I, I had strange confidence because my dad told me to do it. I had a very close relationship with my dad. I always tell him, my favorite one, uh, the, the heavyweight championship of the world was on television, uh, not on television, on radio. And it was on real, real late, about 10 o'clock. And uh, I, I couldn't stay up that late. And so I said, Mom, Mom, please, let me stay up. Let me hear Rocky Marciano fight. He's on the radio. I got to hear the fight. You know, right? No, Tuesday, you got to go to sleep. You got to. So I go to bed because I was a good kid. I listened to Active, but good kid. I went to sleep. Then I remember, it felt like the middle of the night. All of a sudden, I felt someone shaking me. I look up, and there's my dad with a radio under his arm going, shh. We plugged in it, and I listened to Rocky Marciano. I don't remember one thing about the fight. Well, except I know he never lost a fight, so I guess he won. But I don't know anything about the fight. But I do now, now. And I'm telling you, almost you know, 50 years later, my dad had a radio under his arm. And he said, that's this holiday. The comfort, love, assurance that a father brings to his children. When you think of Sukkot, that's what you got to think of. You got to think God loves his people. You got to think that God's dwelling with his people. You got to think that he cares for provision, protection. All the songs we were singing speak of this holiday. So, fill it in. Fill it in. Sukkot tells us something. Sukkot tells us God desires to dwell with. He wants to live with you. Always has, always will. God has a desire to live with his people. He wants us to enjoy him. This holiday speaks of his dwelling. And second, provision and care. It's really one thing, but provision and care for his people. Those are the two things. I want you to look at me today for a minute. The first thing uh, in your outlines, God desires to dwell with his people. He always has desired to do You trace this throughout the Bible. God has always desired to dwell with his people. That's... God wants to have intimate relationship with you. When I used to study in seminary and Bible school, there was a theology that was taught in the 19th century. It's called deism. Not important, but this, this is the theory with the higher critics and the people started questioning the Bible. They said, supposed believers, they weren't, but they, they said that God created the heavens and the earth. God created mankind. God winded it all up. And God backed off and is watching the world just run out. That God does nothing, but he sits and watches. That was a theology that was taught. It's called theism. God is not involved in the affairs of men. Now, in our day and age, you see, I, I, I grew up reading the classics. And 
in our day and age, they've made the classics famous in our day and age. There was the, the classic book, or the, yeah, the classic book called Spider-Man. And then there's the classic book called Iron Man. And so these, not classic, comic books. Anyway, so in our day and age, and I see all these movies, Superman, Batman, Daredevil. Hey, you've never heard of them. I'm an expert on them because I grew up reading all about these, these comic book characters. Hulk, you've seen Hulk. I, I knew Hulk a long time ago. Anyway, but uh, so you see, uh, so in this day and age, we've made movies about all these characters. Captain America, Daredevil, Fantastic Four, and the list goes on and on. And I get excited every time I see a new movie made about a new character. And I remember reading my comic books, and these people always fighting. They, the evil people. And, you know, comic books, they're fantasy. So not only would the fight against the evil, wicked, bad people be on the earth, they went into outer space. And I, I never questioned how they get out of that. But they're fighting the bad people. And finally, I remember at one point uh, that they'd be fighting in outer space. All of a sudden, they'd go so far out of space, everything stopped. Because there was another super character. I, they've never made a movie about this character. Because they never saw this character. This character was called the Watcher. I remember. And when they would fight, they'd go into outer space and they were fighting the bad wicked people. All of a sudden, they came into the presence of the Watcher. Everything stopped. Comic book was over. They all went back to Earth. Everything was good. They made nice. The Watcher, though, never did a thing. He just watched. And that's the theology that we see in the 18th century. God is not just a Watcher. He is involved with you and me. He's involved with our lives. And people that don't see God involved with them don't know him. They don't realize. God desires, always has, folks. I'll summarize a number of things here. The A, God dwelt with his people in the famous, the temple of Solomon. We know that. It's a, it's a beautiful picture. Um, Solomon also wrote these words. Unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who build it. Listen, with all my heart, I know this. If God is not in your life, in your family, in your marriage, with you as you're working, you're empty. Nothing is complete without the Lord in it. People get married without the Lord, it's empty. There's not much of a chance. Sometimes uh, there's, uh, they might make it, but without God in the matter, middle of your life, you're not going to make it. Solomon said, unless the Lord is in the middle, unless the Lord builds your house, so when we get to the book of 1 Kings with Solomon, it's a very interesting story in the Bible because, you know, I like biblical history. So if you can, be patient with me here. The Jewish people came out of Egypt. Came out of Egypt about, not important, if you like dates, it's about 1440 BCA. They came out of Egypt. They went into the wilderness. They were in there for 40 years. And you think now they're a nation. Not really. And they get out of the wilderness. And then Moses dies. And Joshua brings them into the land. Somewhere around 1400 BCE. And then they start, you know, trying to occupy the land of different tribes. It's the period of judges. It took about 400 years. From about 1400 to almost 1000. And at the end of that period of hundreds of years. At the end of that period. One man, God uh, brought one man in Israel. To head up the nation of Israel by the name of Saul. And that became, uh, that was somewhere around the year 1040 BCE. And Saul was a great general and he started to solidify the nation and defeat the Philistines and different people. Saul started bringing the, the nation of Israel together. Not complete yet. 
Even that, now it's been hundreds of years since Moses. And they're in the land. And so, so, then Saul dies and we get the great King David. Around 1000 BC. David brings the, 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 the people together. He unites the nation pretty much. Not 100 complete yet. He wants to build a temple. He's not allowed. He's a man of war. And man of bloodshed. God doesn't let him build a temple. Then David dies. And it's about the year 960 BCE. David's son Solomon takes over. And if you can think of it this way. God is building from the time of the Exodus to the time of the judges to the time of the kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. And it's like God is building a masterpiece. It's getting ready. It's getting higher and higher and building till the nation is really complete and the beautiful, beautiful picture. It's almost a picture of the future millennial kingdom. But it's ready. This is hundreds of years already. Now all of a sudden, Solomon's solid in the kingdom. And you see the beginning of Solomon's wisdom and power and everything. And he starts building the temple. So that's where we are. First Kings, look at me. First Kings chapter 8, verse 1. Then Solomon assembled all the elders of Israel, heads of the tribes, the teachers, fathers, households, sons of Israel, to King Solomon and Jerusalem. Got them all together. Hundreds, well, Moses is 1400. This is uh, about 960. It's four or 500 years later. And he brings them all together to the city of David which is Zion. Then they brought up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. They bring that into it. Um, And it says the holy utensils. And it goes on in verse 5. King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled to him were with him before the Ark, sacrificing sheep and goats and all kinds of uh, sacrifices. Then the priest brought the Ark into the Covenant of the Lord to its place. It's as if like it's a crescendo. It's building, folks. We're waiting for something incredible to take place. Nation has come in. God brought him out. God's bringing. He's, he's made everything just perfect. As, as I see him do. At Shuva. Not quite. But you know. As God's bringing the pieces here. And making a great, great kingdom. And that's what we see. When you can get the picture. In 1 Kings chapter 8. Then it says in uh, verse 6. Are we up there on verse 6? Yeah, good. Then the priests... Then the priest brought in the Ark of the Covenant to the place, the inner sanctuary, the most holy place, were under the wings of the cherubim. Verse 7, the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the Ark. And the cherubim made a covering. We're almost there. We're almost there. Something's going to take place. The fulfillment, the completion for the nation of Israel here. There was nothing in the ark except the two to- uh, tablets of stone, which Moses put there at the Mount Hor, Sinai. When the Lord made a covenant with the sons of Israel, and they came out, verse 10, it happened that when the priests came from the holy place, here it is. What happened? Everyone read it. God came. It's the culmination of the years of the Jewish people out of Egypt. When God says, I want to dwell and live with my people. When God says he wants to dwell with you, that's good. Because he's going to take care of you. It's bad if you don't want to live with him. And you don't want to serve him. You don't want to do for him. Then he'll have to discipline you. It's not so pleasant. But when you follow him, he's going to live with you and provide. And it says the cloud, symbolic of God, or God's actual presence. So a cloud filled the house of the Lord. So the priests couldn't even stand to minister because of the cloud. It was overwhelming. The cloud, the glory of God. Because God always dwells with his people. In the past, in the temple, God dwelt. Because God 
loves to be with his people. But I like to go back to even when they came out of Egypt. Fill it in your outlines. God dwelt in the wilderness tabernacle. Always. Don't ever say to me, God's foreign. He's away. He doesn't want to be. You invite him into your life. You talk to him every morning. You read what he has to say to you. You can experience the joy of the Lord. Jewish people came out. of And we get to the book of Exodus. Now, the book of Exodus is an incredible book. Each book has, you know, you should be able, and on almost any book of the Bible, to be able to summarize it very, very easily. I always tell you, you can teach people the book of Genesis in eight words. You know that? Eight words. Some of you know how to do it. I've said it before. Eight words. The whole book of Genesis. Here we go. You ready? I'll prove it right now. Okay. The first 12 chapters, first 11 chapters. Here we go. Everyone, get your hands ready. Put them here. Everyone? All right, everybody. Right like that. Good. Good. Right. All right. Do this. Creation. I heard no one. I'm, no, what am I? You're alone? No, no. Everyone. Ready? Here we go. Creation. That's two chapters. You just taught people two chapters. Now, you might want to say a few things if you want, if you're teaching. You know, there's water, air, land, the animal. That. Creation. What happens in chapter three, four, and five? Fall. Oh, Adam and Eve, the fall, Cain and Abel, not pretty. So you just did six, uh, six chapters there. Uh, creation, fall. Next word, flood. Ah, uh-huh, you know the flood. Chapter six, seven, eight, nine, here you go. You just taught people nine chapters in the book of Genesis. You say, well, that's three words. How are you going to do 50 chapters? Here we go. Ready? Everyone say it with me. Ready? Here we go. Creation, fall. Nations. Ah, that's when he, he babbled, tongues, psst, formed all the nations. You just did 11 chapters in Genesis. Yeah, yeah, you could fill it in. You're studying and you got, you're telling people. You could teach the whole by, uh, Genesis 1 to 11, four words. Creation, fall, flood, nations. All right, Larry, come on. How are you going to do 12 through 50 in four words? Simple. Ready? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Done. You got it. You've just done Genesis, folks. Really. You can make it in seven. Leave Joseph off. He's part of uh, Jacob. But anyway, there's the debate. Anyway, creation, fall, flood, nations, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. That's it. You've taught the book of Genesis. It all fits on that. Now, there's some tough parts in there. Exodus, great. Great, 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 great book. And when you see the formation, development of the book of Exodus, it's really great too. Because when you think of Exodus, and I'm not going to do the same thing with Exodus, but you think of the beginning as Pharaoh with the burdens and the, the, the pain that he, the, the he inflicted on Israel, first couple of chapters. Then all of a sudden, God raises up a deliverer called Moses. And God calls Moses. And then after he calls Moses, then he sends Moses. And he does the ten plagues. Then after he sends Moses, then he goes and delivers the Jewish people out of Egypt. And... Through, uh, down the, uh, to the Red Sea and through the Red Sea. And then God, uh, you see him on Mount Sinai with thunder and lightning and giving Moses the Ten Commandments. There was the Ten Plagues, now there's the Ten Commandments. And, and this is all, this is amazing. In Exodus, this is only half the book. First 20 chapters, there's 40 chapters. What's the next part? The next part is the cure for insomnia. Exodus 20 through 40. 
This is the cure for insomnia. You know there's three sections in the Bible that will cure any of your illnesses not able to, not able to sleep. Just try me, test me, that's okay. Genesis, uh, Exodus 20 through 40, the building of the tabernacle. I know it's God's house, but it's tough. Unless you're a carpenter, you're going to have trouble. <laughs> Unless you're a weaver of fabrics, you're going to have trouble. I, I wrote them down because I wouldn't remember them. But he deals with material. He deals with the ark, the laver, the mercy seat, the, the breastplate, the bread, the lamps, the curtains, the boards, two by fours, five by eight, six by ten. Bill, you like that. But anyway, um, uh, tables and veils and altars and quartz and uh, oil and garments and incense and consecration. Every time I get to Gen- uh, Exodus 20, I go, oh, here we go again. But you read it because God wants you. But here's the amazing thing. Chapters 25 through 30 God describes all this. This is very difficult. Then, from chapter 35 to 39, he does it again. At first, he describes it. Then he says, now bring it. Each piece. He goes through each piece. I say, okay, Lord, enough. Can you summarize, Lord? Anyway, so he brings it all together. Then in chapter 39, God says, all right, now say wreck my house. So it's difficult. If you're concerned and you don't know the other passages because you have trouble sleeping, you go to Leviticus 13 and 14, the leprosy laws. Not possible to get through two chapters there. Um, and those leprosy laws with the, the mold on the house and the swelling of your head. And the, it's, it's very tough. It's tough, very tough. And, the, and then the, the easiest cure, First Chronicles chapters 1 to 8. So-and-so, begot so-and-so, begot so-and-so, begot so-and-so. And then there was Jabez. Ah, the prayer of Jabez. He wanted to be... Anyway, so we're... Exodus. Exodus here. There's a reason I'm doing all this. Because just like I said with Solomon, Exodus brings out this nation, delivers them from Pharaoh, brings them through the Red Sea, gives them his law. Beautiful sections. Then God says, if you build my house... I'm going to dwell in it with you. And so you get to the end of Exodus chapter 40. Follow along with me. Exodus 40, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, on the first day of the month, actually we could skip that slide, go to the next one. It says, and Moses erected the tabernacle. That's enough for that one. Go to the next slide. Exodus 40 verse 34. Then the cloud covered the temple. There it is again. The presence of God dwelling with his people. God wants to live with you. God wants to have fellowship with you. And it says, the cloud covered uh, the tent of meeting. The glory of the Lord filled the place, uh, the tabernacle. Moses was not even able to enter. It was too overwhelming, too powerful. In verse, uh, chapter 40, verse 37. But if the cloud was uh, not taken up, then they didn't set out. Whenever the cloud was taken up, we're moving out. Cloud stayed, we're staying. Cloud came, stayed over the tabernacle. Actually, it was be- probably a beautiful sight. In the night, it was burning fire in the clouds, in the sky. In the day, there was a cloud to cover them from the beating heat. God was with them. And then it stayed. So they said, whoop, make camp. They all camp. It could be a day. could be a month. could be a year. We're staying. We're not leaving the presence of God. I'm not going anywhere without this cloud. Uh-oh, guys. It's up. It's moving. 
All right, pack up. Off we go. Whenever that cloud went, they went. Because you don't want to go through life without the presence of God in your life. And neither did Israel. Exodus chapter 2. See, listen. God always dwells with his people. With Solomon in the cloud. Fill it in sea. God will dwell in the future in Jerusalem. It's a great, great promise. Everyone, we, we, we know the, I, I've done this for you, the timeline. But right now, we're in a period, 2,000 years, we're waiting for the fulfillment of Rosh Hashanah. We had the fulfillment of Passover, death of Messiah, the holiday of first fruits, resurrection of Messiah, the descending of the Spirit in the day of Pentecost when God gave His Spirit upon them and, they, and He formed the body of Messiah, the biblical body of Messiah. And so God gave Him His law. God gave Him His Spirit. And now there's, we're in this period for the last 2,000 years between the Jewish holidays. Now in the future, the trumpet will blast. That's the, the Rosh Hashanah trumpet we mentioned in Isaiah 27. Possibly 1 Thessalonians 4, that trumpet blast. That is what I call the fulfillment of Rosh Hashanah, when God will regather his people to the land of Israel. I know he's been doing it, but there will be a future trumpet blast. Rosh Hashanah will be fulfilled, and that is Isaiah 27, 12, and 13. That's when that, then he gathers them together for the holiday of Sukkot, I'm sorry, the holiday of Yom Kippur, when he will cleanse the nation of Israel from their sin. This is prophetic. It's all in Leviticus 23. God will gather them. God will cleanse them. Then God will dwell and live with them. He's preparing them for that day when he will dwell with them, tabernacle among his people. That's the timeline. And so Messiah, now I personally believe that the next thing on God's calendar, I think, you know, some might differ. You're wrong. I'm right, but that's okay. Uh, The next thing is what I call the rapture or the catching up together of the body of Messiah. The Bible says we're going up. I didn't see it yet. You see left behind? Anyway, I'm not recommending it yet. I didn't see it. I have to be careful when I recommend a movie. I get in trouble. Anyway, so uh, left behind teaches there's going to be a rapture. The body of Messiah is going to be caught up. Then there's going to be a period of about seven years, what we call the tribulation period. Then at the end of the tribulation period, Messiah returns with his bride, with his body of Messiah, with his believers to set up the future kingdom in Israel. When God will dwell with his people. That's the fulfillment of this holiday. God dwelling with his people in Jerusalem sometime in the future. So, we read about it in Zechariah. The prophet Zechariah tells us. And in that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. All those who rise up against Israel, God's going to destroy. God's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. Um, I will pour out my... Pour out on the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. I love this verse. So, when God comes back, he's going to fight for Israel. He's going to pour out his spirit. And they shall all look upon him whom they have pierced. Yeshua's returning. We're going to see Messiah. We'll recognize the pierced mark. He is coming back. Zechariah 12.10. Great, great verse. They will see, look on him whom they pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for only his son. They will realize this is the one. Zechariah 14 describes it a little bit different. In verse 2, uh, Yeshua says, or God says here through Yeshua, the Messiah is coming. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. Someday in the future, we sort of see it almost in our day. All the nations are going to rise up against Israel. And the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished. 
Half of the city will be exiled. The rest of the people will not will be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth to fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. In that day, I love to read this on the Mount of All. Let me just get a hand here. How many have been to Israel? Raise your hand. Good, okay, good, good. And I'm assuming you've all been to the Mount of All. How many have not? Raise your hand. May 17th, we're going. I'll take you to the Mount of Olives. All those other people who are there, they don't know where the spot is. I know where the spot is. Where Yeshua is coming back on his feet. Everyone thinks they do. I got inside track. Anyway, Yeshua is coming back. He's coming back. He's going to be on that Mount of Olives. Which is on the east side of Jerusalem. And the mountain's going to move to the north and the south. It's going to split in a valley. Great valley from east to west. Yeshua's going to come in there and save our Jewish people. And we, his bride, are going to be with him as he delivers Israel. In that day, I love Zechariah 14. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in Jerusalem, on the east of Jerusalem. Mount of Olives is going to split. I just told you that. Very large valley. Half is going to move to the north, half to the south. Zechariah 14. And the Lord will be king over all the earth in that day. We sing about that. In that day the Lord will be only, the only one in his name, the only one. Then it will come about that any who are left of the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up every year, worship the king, the Lord of hosts, to celebrate. We're going to celebrate his living with us. The feast of booze. That's tabernacle, folks. That's the coat. Your timeline. That's this kingdom here for a thousand years. Then at the thousand years, when that thousand years is up, that famous kingdom, then the Lord's going to go, it's going to burn it all up. No more water. This time, fire. Everything's going to burn up. And the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, new Jerusalem are coming down. And we're going to be with him in the new heavens and new Jerusalem. And that's the real, really great more fulfillment of Sukkot, when God will dwell with his people. Always wants to be with us. That's his desire. It's great. Look at Revelation 21. And I saw the new heaven and the new earth. The first heaven, the first earth passed away. There was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the Sukkot, Sukkah of God, the dwelling place, the tabernacle of God. Uh, where was I? Okay, yeah. Tabernacle is among them, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. God dwelt in the temple. God dwelt in the wilderness. God will dwell in the future, and folks, God dwells with us now. And he does. I know that, because I spoke to him this morning. Yeah, we had a nice conversation. He spoke to me, I spoke to him. Through the word of God, through prayer. Otherwise, you might think I'm ready for the loony bin. But no, he did speak to me. D, God dwells with us today. Always wants to dwell with his people. That's the beauty of God. He loves to be with his people. To show us new things all the time. John 14. I will ask the Father, Yeshua speaking. He'll give you another helper, the Holy Spirit. That he'll be with you forever. That's the spirit of truth. Whom the world cannot receive. Because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and he will be in you. God desires to be with you. Let me, this sometimes offends people, but you know me, I'm up here and I offend you. What can I tell you? Um, I hope you all come back, but when I offend you, some of you never come back. But listen, listen. The Bible says God dwells in us. In who? 
All of us? Sorry. He loves you, but he just doesn't live in you. Now he lives in me. Not because I'm good, where I deserve it, but because I admit I'm weak and I stink. And I've sinned. And I need you. I humble myself before him. And on January 15th, that day I told God I was a sinner I believe Yeshua died for me as predicted in the old covenant I now want to receive him into my heart and my life on January 15, 1972 God dwelt in me and he says I will never leave you he won't leave you now if I get out of line he'll teach me he'll discipline me so who does God live in their hearts? I'm sorry. This is, this is just the way the Bible says it. Those who put their trust in Messiah, he will come to live in you. If you're not willing to do that, he does not live in you. That's as simple as that. Look at 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. Do you not know? The great rabbi wrote this. He says, don't you know? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. There's no temple today, but there is. Us, believers, not just me believers you're the temple of the holy spirit who is in you whom you have from god and you are not your own god dwells in you all right this holiday you all know god dwells with you in the temple in the wilderness in jerusalem in the new heavens new earth and today here that's what sukkot's all about and second one he dwells with you two he provides He cares for you. He meets your needs. God cares for all of us. And he meets all of our needs. We can summarize a lot of this. Anyway, but I want you to see God provides for you. Leviticus 23 is where the holiday is mentioned. And it says this. Speak to the children of Israel, sons of Israel, saying, On the 15th of the seventh month is the Feast of Booze. That was this week, Wednesday. First is Rosh Hashanah. Ten days later, there's Yom Kippur. Five days later, there's the holiday of Sukkot. And so it says, and the seventh, the fifteenth day, uh, the fifteenth day of the month is the feast of booths, tabernacle dwelling for seven days uh, to the Lord. Is this, on exactly the fifteenth of the day of the seventh month, you shall gather in the crops of the field. You shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days with it on the uh, the first day with a rest on the first day and a rest on the eighth day, which is the Jewish holiday of uh, Shmini Atzeretz. That's the eighth day. That's a special day consecrated. You don't hear too much about that. But that's when Jewish people have a special day of consecration. You could have a special day, special celebration in your sukkah. Now, follow along Leviticus 23.40. Now, on the first day, you shall take for yourselves foliage of beautiful trees. Symbolic of, you know, God's blessing the land. Palm branches, boughs of leafy trees, willows of the brook. There we go. There we go. It's all symbolic of when God was dwelling with us and uh, caring for them. On that day, you shall take all these things. You shall thus celebrate as a feast of the Lord for seven days. It shall be a permanent statue throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. Some people, I know my good friend in New York, actually the rabbi of a congregation in New York called Shuva Yisrael. Yeah, yeah, he's the first one, my good friend. But it, to him, it's his favorite. 
all week. It's big. And some of you do it. It's great. You build those nice sukkahs and you have meals every night there and you invite new people. Great, great time of fellowship and remembering. You're supposed to have the skies uh, open up so you can see the stars in the sky and worship God. Beautiful, beautiful time of celebration. And God says here, uh, verse 42, you shall live in booths for seven days. All the native in Israel shall live in the booths so your generations will know that I had the sons of Israel live in tents, booths, sukkahs. And I, when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. What does it symbolize? God dwelling and providing for his people. How did he provide for them? Follow along. God fed his people in the wilderness. Exodus 17. You stand before the rock at Horeb. You shall strike the rock, Moses. Water is going to gush out. God gave them water. It's always so incredible. When you hear the focus on water, we don't understand that. Although California, we do now a little bit. We're getting to. You go to Israel, you really understand how much they need that water. God provided for them the water when there was nothing. We're going to see how much in a minute. But in chapter 20, then Moses lifted up his hand, hit the rock, and the water gushed forth abundantly. God gave them water. They were thirsty. I don't think they had to conserve their water. I don't believe so. I wasn't there, but I don't think they had to conserve it. I think they, it was wonderful. They had all the water they needed. But then there were some of us that said, you know, I want some bread. You know, we're never content. Lord, you know, I'd like some bread. Can you make me some challah? I'll give you better than challah. I'd like to have tasted that first bread, that manna. God gave him bread. When the layer of dew evaporated from the land in the morning, on the surface of the wilderness, there was a fine flake-like croissant. No, no, I don't know. Fine as the frost of the ground. When the sons of Israel saw it, they said, What is it? The Hebrew word, manna. What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said, This is the bread the Lord has given to you to eat. Okay, I've had bread and water. Lord, am I in prison? I'd like some meat. What kind of meat? Yeah, I wouldn't mind a ribeye steak, a nice ribeye, a little brisket. Women want the filet. I want the ribeye. Anyway, I'd like some good meat, Lord. And God provided them the meat. When the dew fell on the camp of the ground, the manna would fall with it. Now there went forth a wind, uh, went forth from the Lord and brought quail. Can you imagine? All the quail, the land was folk, all of quail all over their place. They had all that they wanted. I love what it says here. It says, because, you know, they complain, we want meat. So God says to my, all right, you want meat? I'll give you meat. God says, you want meat. I'm really going to give you meat. You want to complain? I'm going to give you, he says to Moses, I'm not going to give you meat for a day. I'm not going to give you meat for five days or 10 days or 20 days. I'm going to give you meat till it's coming out of your nostrils. I'm going to give you so much meat. You're going to say, enough meat already. So it says, uh, all the meat, all right, good, good. Uh, Numbers eleven thirty-two. The people spent all that day and night. The next day they gathered the quail and they spread them out for themselves all around. God would give them the necessities of life, folks. We worry, we fret about so many things. Bible says be anxious for nothing. You see, if you focus on the Lord and you serve him and live your life for him, he promises to provide for your needs. And then some. 
Not your greeds all the time, but he always provides for our needs. I always love when God said to David, and if that had been too little, and what God was saying to David is, I gave you the kingdom. I gave you everything, the whole nation, the whole kingdom, everything in the world. I gave you wives and blessings and prosperity. And David blew it, committed adultery, committed murder. And God said, but if that had been too little, I'd have given you much, much more. See, God wants to give us water and meat and bread. We don't have to worry. We seek first the kingdom of God. We hear it, but I don't know if we always do it. Seek first the kingdom of God and God will provide. B, God taught them. Not only does God feed them, but look for Israel. He humbled you, Deuteronomy 8. He humbled you, let you be hungry, fed you with manna which you did not know, your fathers which they didn't know, that he might that you might understand that man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. God is the one who teaches us. Deuteronomy 8, 6. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and fear him. God taught them. God gives us wisdom and insight and understanding as you seek him. As you read his word. As you seek him, he'll give you supernatural understanding and wisdom. If you seek God. The wisdom that comes from God. See, God provided for his people's needs. I like Deuteronomy 5, uh, 29, 5. I led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes did not wear out on you. Your clothes always were good. Your clothes didn't wear out. Your sandals didn't wear out. God provided for all their needs. God cared for all his people, his welfare. Nehemiah, it's a great passage. You, God, in your great compassion, you didn't forsake the, uh, the children in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. You gave them your good spirit to instruct them. Your manna you did not withhold from their mouth. You gave them water for their thirst. Indeed, 40 years you provided for them in the wilderness, and they were not in want. Their clothes did not wear out. And I always love this phrase. And their feet did not swell. Now, I, I don't think you... I mean, your feet are going to swell. And your clothes are going to wear out. In that situation, they didn't. The clothes didn't wear out. I wonder with the children, did the shoes expand as the kids grew? Because, you know, those, those kids, they grow fast. I, I don't know. But anyway. Um, but the picture here is coat God provides for us. He fed them. He taught them. He cared for them. He met their every need. And I know this God is trying to say to you and I who fret and worry and were anxious, if he took care of those people in the wilderness, he will and can take care of you. If you serve him. Yeah, he's gracious. And even if you don't serve him, he blesses you. But we could be guaranteed if you do his work, he will always meet all your needs. Finally, fill it in. God provides and cares for all of us today. 1 Timothy 6. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. There's nothing wrong with God deciding to give you money. There is something wrong with you seeking for money. And seeking like, like it's the most important thing. The love of money, the craving of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And God taught me a long time ago. I told you. God has always said to me, don't you seek for money, Larry. Because you are a you called me a loser I'm a loser folks 
I am a loser. When I try to seek money, I always lose. So if you ever see me invest in something, make sure you invest in the opposite. Never go the direction I go. Because I am a loser. And God has taught me. God has taught me well. That here's all my needs. He gives me and I meet all my needs. God says to me, if you serve me with all your heart and seek me with all your heart, I will always meet all your needs. I'm a young man, 66, and I've never seen the Lord forsake me. He's always watched over me. And we can trust that God will always provide for you. Love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Don't seek for money. Seek for him. By longing for it, you've wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. It, it grieves me when I hear of people craving and scheming to get money. It really does. It grieves me. Because I know that's not the answer. You might get the money. Now, I feel sorry for you. I really do. You can have lots of money. If you're not serving the Lord, I feel sorry for you. Because you have nothing. God can easily take it away. Or you just will not seek God. God says, flee from these things, you man of God, women of God, person of God. Uh, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, gentleness. We know the passage, Matthew 6. But if God so closes, uh, closes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what am I going to eat? What are we going to drink? What am I going to wear? But seek first God's kingdom, his righteousness, and everything you need will be added to you. It's God's promise. 1 Peter 5, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he will exalt you. He'll lift you up. He'll provide for you. He'll raise you up in your time. Casting all your anxiety, your cares on him, because he cares for you. He cares whether you have a house and where you live. He does. And in my few years that I've seen, I've seen God give people houses. It's no problem for God. A house in this day and age is impossible. It's so hard, especially in California. God has no problem giving you a house if he wants you to have it. I've seen God provide. People say, I can't go to Israel. Larry, your trips are so expensive. I know I've seen God provide very easily for people. Five, six thousand dollars. God just gives it to you. That's a lot of money. Not for him. It's nothing for him. Six thousand? Peanuts. It's really nothing. God can give you that. And I think if you pray and, and it's God's design and will for you to go to Israel, you just keep praying. He'll give you the money. He'll bless you. You don't have to worry about it. If God wants you there, you will be there. Seek him. I tell stories. I, t- I don't have to go into it. But I've seen God provide for people $100,000. Out of nowhere. $50,000. And I love to tell it this way. I've seen God provide $40,000. i have seen God provide $10,000. i have seen God provide 1000 I've seen God provide $150. Larry, your argument is getting weaker. I've seen God provide $10. Well, who can't do that? 
listen carefully, a hundred thousand is no different than ten dollars in God's hand. He can do it without problem. They're the same. So God provides for all of your needs. That's what this holiday is all about. A loving father who wants you to seek a relationship with him as he provides and cares for you. God has no trouble providing. Sukkot tells us two things. One, God desires you. God desires to live with you. You know, have you ever seen that movie? I'm not going to tell you because sometimes it's not so good in the movie. But Robert De Niro, you. You, you're good. Some of you know. You, you're good. He provides all your needs. Always does. He lives with you. He provides for you. And because of that, fill it in. Because he is with us, we can experience comfort and assurance. God is there to comfort us. I've seen in my life where I've had moved. Move is, you, one of the big stressors in life is the moves. And I've moved a few times in my, my life. And I've always seen how the, the Lord blesses in the move. In the difficulty. You know, I, I, I was thinking, I think this morning I was thinking about, you know, I, sometimes I'd like things to go smooth. Everything just right and perfect. Right. But the Lord doesn't do it that way. He wants to make it all beautiful through the fire, through the difficulties. That when you look back, you go, how in the world did I get through so beautifully? That's what he wants to do. Provide for you. He wants to take you through it and meet all your needs because he's with you. Some of you don't remember. I'm, certainly you don't remember. I'm in sixth grade. The school only went up to sixth grade. And school was out at three o'clock. And at a quarter of three, or this day and age, 2.45, quarter of three, the teacher in the class, would used to, you know, we had blackboards, chalk. Some of you know what that is? Chalk, blackboards. So, and and the teacher would write and use the erasers, you know, get the erasers. And at a quarter of three, the teacher looked at the class and picked someone. I said, You. Would you like to take the erasers outside? Oh, please pick me, please. Just to get out of the class was so good. Just for a minute. We take these erasers, and what you did is you had to pound them. <laughs> Chalk everywhere. You go outside and pound it. I, you know, to be picked was the greatest. Anything to get me out of that room. Oh. Just for a minute. It's like you're, you're out of jail, you know? You leave the class, you walk down the stairs, you go outside. (laughs) You got the world. You're free. When their poor kids are suffering in there. For a minute, you don't care. So when you get picked, it was good. And when I get picked on certain days, there was a big schoolyard that we all played in. And the top of the schoolyard, there was a fence. And outside I saw the street. And every so often, I'd go out. And look at the top of the street, and I'd see a little white Chevrolet. And inside the Chevrolet was a pair of jeans. We weren't allowed to wear jeans in school. A pair of jeans, a football, and my dad. He was waiting up there in the corner. When I saw him, everything was right with the world. 
because I knew he cared for me. There was assurance and comfort with my dad. Now, let me tell you, if I was out of line, I was not happy to see him up there. I knew I'd be in trouble. Hello. So when, when you are with God and serving him, it's good. We have assurance. Because God cares, we can trust him. Because he cares for you, we can trust him. Look at some, one of the beautiful Psalms and verses. Uh, you've taken account of my wanderings. You put my tears in your bottle. My tears, my suffering, my anguish. Are they not in your book? God knows your needs. God knows your children need uh, braces. God knows you're sick, the jobs, the money, the mates. God knows all this. I like to read it at this time. This is almost overwhelming when you think about it. It's called awesome. Moses and the people were in the wilderness, in the desert. He, what was he going to do with them? I like this. They had to be fed. How many people? Between two and three million. Moses had to feed them. I get nervous. My two grandkids come over. We got to feed. Oh, no, I don't leave that on Rachel's hands. But anyway, two to three million. According to the quartermaster general of the army, it's reported that Moses would have had to have 1,500 tons of food every day. Pretty hard thing to work out. Do you know that to bring in that much food each day takes two freight trains, each at least a mile long would be required. But their heavenly father provided manna every day and meat and water. Besides that, you must remember they were in the desert. So they would have to have some firewood to keep them warm at night. This would take 4,000 tons of wood and a few more freight trains, each a mile long, just for one night. I never thought of that. The food, the, the wood. Just think, they were there for 40 years. Oh yes, that would also mean they need water. If they had only enough to drink and wash their hands and face, it would take 11 million gallons every day and a freight train with tank cars 1,800 miles long just to bring the water. And then there's another thing. They had to get across the Red Sea at night. Now, if they went on a narrow path, double file, the line would be 800 miles long and would require 35 days and nights to get through. So there had to be a space in the Red Sea about three miles wide. So they could walk maybe 5,000 abreast to get over in one night. Then there's one more problem. Each time they camped at the end of a the day, they'd need a campground approximately two-thirds the size of the state of Rhode Island. Or a total of 750 square miles long. Think of it. This much space for camping. Do you think Moses figured all this out before he left Egypt? <laughs> I don't think so. You see, Moses believed in God. God took care of these things. Now, do you think God has any problem providing and taking care of all of our needs? We can trust him. Because God cares for us. And finally, because he provides for you and me, we should decide, I'm going to serve him. It's good to serve him. Because he's going to meet all my needs as I serve him. The holiday of Sukkot, fill it in, sum it up. The God who dwells in us will provide and care for us. 
great holiday of Sukkot. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you this morning for a good day, a great day, Lord, because you provide for us, because you care for us. We ask your blessings here today. My prayer always is for anyone in this room, they might know about you, God. They might know even parts of the Bible, but they never in their life said, I want Yeshua in my heart. I've sinned against you. I believe Yeshua died for me. Now I want to receive him into my life as my Messiah and Savior. So God will come in, in your heart, and dwell with you. And you have the promise that he will provide for you and care for you and take care of all our needs. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We ask your blessings upon it in Yeshua's name. Amen.